In the past several years, the detention of asylum seekers in Greece from the last resort measure turned into a standard procedure. Many asylum seekers spend months in pre-removal detention centers without any knowledge why they have been detained or when they will be released. We know very little about the situation in those pre-removal detention centers. NGOs and human rights monitoring organizations don't have access to those places and not much is being revealed of the conditions inside. Well, until now, as two important reports have just been presented to the public. In today's episode, we will focus on two very important reports. First one by Mobile Info Team, titled Prison for Papers, Last Resorts Measures as Standard Procedure, and a second one by Border Violence Monitoring Network, titled Dark Rooms, Degradating Treatment and Denial, the Use of Violence in Greece's Pre-Removal Detention Centers. And to speak to us about this are two wonderful women, uh, Manon from Mobile Info Team and Hope from Border Violence Monitoring Network. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah, thank you very much for having us. Before we go into the meat of your report, if I may say, say so, to how those last resort measures became the new norm uh, in Greece, I would like us to organize our knowledge a little bit about the pre-removal detention centers, as I believe not many people know much about them. So if you could tell our listeners how many pre-removal detention centers are there in Greece and where are they located? Firstly, just to say that pre-removal detention centers are both facilities. Um, they have extremely restricted entry and exit. There's very limited access to the public. And so there are six pre-removal detention centers on the mainland. And there are three in the north, so Falakio and Paranesti and Sakli, and then three by the south and all quite close to Athens. Uh, so this is Papos or Petrarani and Migdaleza and Corinth. And there's also a pre-removal detention center on Kos um, and um, a couple of others on Lesbos and Samos, but they're not actually at use yet. So technically there are seven that are active currently. And, and there are other sites of detention, of course, as well across Greece. Um, but these are very specific sites. But it, there's also kind of, you know, police stations, special holding facilities. Which uh, pre-removal detention centers were the subject of your uh, research? And if I'm already asking about this, can you tell us a little bit about the methodology behind your research? Um, how did you get into uh, getting access uh, to people whom you interviewed? That must have been an extremely difficult task. So I'm very interested in that. Yeah, um, definitely. Uh, this was one of the big questions as well for us, was how to access um, information. And as I said before, it had very limited access to getting into these sites, even when there is a lawyer and et cetera, it's still very difficult. And um, so we focus specifically on the free removal detention centers on the mainland and sort of six free removal detention centers. Um, and we also kind of did this project as part of EVMN. And as we already collect testimonies of pushbacks and internal violence in the community center and three times a week. So we were kind of utilizing this space already to also collect and um, testimonies here that there were, they were limited. Um, and so to kind of increase our access and information, we started using the Mobile Info Team Facebook page. So the Mobile Info Team Facebook page is used for information provision. So there are posts shared on a weekly basis regarding kind of policy changes, 
how to access of his line of CJ, et cetera. And, and this is a Facebook page that has an outreach of around 66,000 people. And this is largely a community of people that move who use these posts. So we specifically sent out um, some Facebook ads, which just called for research participants. Um, and it kind of created a nicer dynamic because it meant that people reached out to us. So we very clearly said, you know, we're looking for research participants. And it won't help your individual case, of course. But if you would like to share your experience, please reach out. And then we kind of started to get a lot of people reaching out on WhatsApp. And it also meant that we covered the whole in Greece and not just the specific locations um, around us. And also people who had left Greece, but were now was on past experiences. So it was much more kind of inclusive to do it like this. And then the final thing I would say is that over the phone with a cultural mediator, people felt a lot more comfortable to share because um, they weren't kind of in fear that there was somebody else listening or watching. So let's try to now um, define a little bit people who end up in pre-removal detention center, because there is this notion probably with many people that most people who are in those pre-removal detention center are criminals, people who need to be removed from the country because they are a threat to the security and safety of this country. So whom do we have in those pre-removal detention centers? Yeah, and um, so there's actually the kind of legal grounds for detention and one category. So these questions might bleed into each other a little bit. And um, but essentially people end up in detention centers because they are usually apprehended by the police. And this can be really anywhere in the country and transport, public buses, in city spaces. And particularly because there's been a huge increase in police checks um across city spaces. And actually last May it was specifically announced that there would be sweeps of these um of particularly Athens and Thessaloniki. And so essentially the police are looking for people and usually people for profiles uh, to check for documents. Um, and so to ask them what their legal status is and what their right is to be in the country. Um, and this is particularly problematic considering that there has been extremely limited access to the asylum procedure over the past few years. It's very difficult to understand the system. It's constantly changing. So essentially people are picked up by the police. If they don't have documentation, they'll be taken to a police station. Or even if they do have an asylum seekers card, they may also be taken to a police station and then end up in a detention center. I mean, the main legal grounds for people being detained. Um, so there's two categories to be detained. Firstly, as a third country national. So this is somebody who is considered staying illegally on the on Greek territory. And then they would be, whether they've been through the asylum procedure or if they'd be rejected on the other side, uh, then they'd be considered that they have to be deported. And this is how this group ends up in detention. However, it's important to remember that according to EU legislation, people should not be detained like as a standard procedure. It should still be a measure of last resort. So somebody staying illegally in the country and they're subject to return can be detained, but every as a like everything every other measure has to be exhausted. And unfortunately in Greece Greece has expanded the grounds of detention. Um, I think Hope will maybe mention this a bit later, but since 2020, Greece overturned the law and, and the principle of last resort. Uh, are there predominantly men in those detention centers or are there women and minors as well? So anyone can be detained. Um, however, in general, yeah, we mostly see men in, in detention centers. Uh, minors aren't exempt from this. We also spoke to people who are under the age of 18. And despite trying to prove that they were 16, 17 with ID cards from their own country, uh, this is often ignored. Like the kind of general behavior is 
Yeah, not listening to um, people kind of saying, honestly, like the medical assessments, the age of sufferance are either not happening, non-existent or inaccurate. Um, and then after that, people just get treated as one as one group. So whether you're under the age of 18, whether you're an asylum seeker, whether you're a third country national. In general, we do see um, women be detained less in pre-removal detention centers. But in, for example, in Petrovari, they had a specific woman. Within the center, there was kind of a unit that was specifically for women. So let's talk a little bit about those detention centers and the conditions inside. Uh, what do the detainees have access to and what are they in generally denied? I think we can start with medical care because this is a broadly something that people raised a lot as a really key concern and across MIT's casework as well. It's a consistently raised concern as a, one of the most challenging issues. Uh, essentially, people stated that the only way they could get access to medical care was if it was something extremely urgent. And otherwise, complaints are often left kind of ignored and this can continue for several months. Some of us have literally one doctor and they would try to get an appointment and again, it wouldn't happen for several months. And so what we saw reported quite a lot is that people would resort to practices of self-harm in order to get medical attention and really just kind of like, yeah, extreme measures in order to get basic needs. And this is the same with mental health and while in some detention centers that are psychological bubble and it's very, very limited and in general, the kind of structures of facilities lead to a deterioration of mental health. And this was reported by a reported center of response. And it's actually a quarter of respondents referenced evidence of depression, suicidal thoughts, and practices of self-harm. So it's just kind of showing how common it is. Of course, as well, medical care is not uh, like in the medical situation. People is not helped if the hygiene conditions in general are extremely poor. So over 60% of our respondents reported that there were horrendous hygiene conditions, including dirty centers um, and that had mold, infestations of rodents and infects. Some people not having a, their vet to sleep on, not having mattresses to sleep on, or that they were street poor. In terms of recreational activities, educational activities, and um, a place of worship that completely non-existent, access to space um, outside is very limited. Some people reported only having like one or two hours outside a day. Again, food, and um, we consistently reported as low quality, no diversity of the meals, often expired food that isn't crushed. And so, yeah, I kind of, from all sides, a very, very limited access to basic rights, and, um, which of course leads to the deterioration of mental health and sometimes things breaking out twice and between detainees, et cetera. How about access to lawyers? Yeah, again, very limited. And um, Actually, it was 70% of the people we spoke to reported that they had no access to information, no access to their, to understanding like what their status was, what next procedures they should take. Uh, and this is also amplified by lack of translation. So people were commonly um, forced to sign documents in a language that they didn't understand. Uh, kind of amplifying the, yeah, the lack of clarity over their own situations, not understanding who they could go to for a lawyer and next they paid extremely high fees. There's a kind of standard of private lawyers charging around 2,000 euros, which is completely unattainable, especially when people in detention and can't have any access to funding or working at all. So yeah, this really just contributes to the um, to the situation. Uh, I would like to shift a little bit towards the violence and ill treatment in those pre-removal uh, detention centers. What are your report's findings on these issues? 
So um, whilst MIT was covering more the um, material kind of violence and the conditions, uh, the BDMN report that we did looks more at the actual physical violence that was taking place in the centres. So I think like it's really important to put it in the context of the fact that there's like a complete lack of transparency or public access to these detention centres, which makes them these fertile breeding grounds for rights abuses because uh, barely any civil society organisations have access. There are virtually no real complaints mechanisms, which means that it's just kind of this space where things are allowed to happen that wouldn't be if there was greater scrutiny or things under the public eye. And um, on top of this, mobile phones are allowed in some centers, but they're often confiscated. And for example, in Paranesti, it's a kind of like a blanket thing that the cameras are smashed before they're being returned. And detainees kind of acknowledge and say themselves, this is so they can't record what's happening to them or what the... Um, what the conditions are like. Um, so there's this like active effort to basically take these spaces away from public scrutiny. And that's where these uh, violations and rights abuses are allowed to take place. So over the 50 testimonies that the reports were based on, and also the ongoing testimonies that we're still collecting, respondents are um, consistently sharing experiences of high levels of violence. Um, and this kind of particularly follows a pattern of what they describe to be as violence as punishment. So when we ask what they mean by that, they kind of describe behaviors that they are doing, which leads to them being punished by authorities. Um, and those behaviors they reported as like making too much noise, asking too many times about the status of their asylum, uh, or in some cases, if they're suffering from deteriorating mental health, as Manon spoke about, and they're expressing this, there's a response of verbal and physical violence. And um, so as you can see, it's not like a last resort or a self-defense tactic. Um, it's punishment over the smallest things. And another thing people frequently reported was that they were taken to what they refer to as dark rooms. So blind spots in the center, which aren't covered by surveillance or can't be seen by other inmates. And that's when they were most, um, most viciously beaten and also that they would be beaten on areas of the body that wouldn't necessarily be seen by others so avoiding their extremities and their head which also shows this like clear intent for violence to take place and for it to be hidden so also clear knowledge that what's happening is wrong um on top of this you know there's been a number especially in paranesti of hunger strikes so people protesting the physical violence that's needed out against them but also the conditions um, and this has cut, this is uh, often been met with a very strong violent response as well. We had one case where people said that they were taken into their containers and the riot police were basically let loose on them to the extent that some people suffered from broken bones in response to them using the only means that they have to protest the conditions. Um, but yeah, just a few stats about what our data showed. So. 65% of the respondents said that they had been subjected to violence by authorities or witnessed violence by authorities in detention. And in Paranesti, the one I spoke about earlier, where they smashed their phone cameras, it was 80% of respondents who indicated violent practices. So obviously some are more violent than others. Um, over 20% of respondents specifically reported being victims of racist abuse in crew removal detention centres. 15% of respondents specifically used the term torture to describe their treatment. And 20% of testimonies mentioned punishment tactics in these dark rooms that I spoke about. 
and two people actually described the use of electric discharge weapons being used against them, which again in BDMN we um, determine as a form of uh, torture. Those are very, very strong allegations. Um, you released your report some time ago. I wanted to ask if there's any response from the go- Greek government uh, towards those uh, allegations. No, no response. Um, and we've also sent uh, the report to the ombudsman um, who was supposedly at the end of it, but we haven't had any kind of concrete response to any of these allegations. Hmm. I assume there are no NGOs working inside those pre-removal detention centers. So um, UNHCR have access and also GCR have access, um, but it's mostly on like a case basis or for just providing legal information. So it's quite limited in terms of the kind of information they can get when they're there. I'm asking because I remember when we were working in Moria, there was a pre-removal detention center in Moria before it uh, burned down. Uh, and some NGOs were allowed inside with some really basic, basic needs like extra food and, and things like this. And uh, I assume, should there be any additional NGOs working inside those freedom removal detention centers, the knowledge would be widespread. And your reports are basically the first ones talking about those issues. Okay, let's talk about how is this all possible. Manon, you also you mentioned a little bit before uh, that uh, the law has changed and it's uh, it allows for more right now. So if you could lead us through those changes and say what are the pieces of legislation that actually allow for detaining people who are asylum seekers? Um, so yeah, since New Democracy came in power in 2019, there was like a series of legislative changes that have been implemented. Um, and these include several amendments to the asylum code, uh, material reception conditions and laws around return. So one of the key changes that Manon was talking about were the amendments to Greek law 4939-2022 and 3907-2011, which overturned the exceptional application of detention measures for third country nationals subject to return orders. So this is what changed. So the detention is no longer a last resort. Um, but this also then raises questions regarding the reasonable, pro- reasonable prospect of removal and the proportionality of detention. Because if you are putting everyone in detention and it's no longer a last resort, there has to be some reasonable prospect that they will eventually be returned. Um, however, EU statistics on returns show that this isn't happening in Greece. So across a three-year period, 2018, 2020 and 2021, um, only three of 1,705 Moroccans with return orders were actually returned. So that's 0.18%. So there is no reasonable prospect of people being sent back, even though that's what they're being held in detention for, which means that the measure is not proportional. And I really, I, I, can you please repeat the number? Because this is such an important piece of information, how little people are actually being removed and sent back to their own country. Exactly. So of Moroccans, it's three of 1,705. So it's 0.18%. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. And it's just the, some of the other, like, we don't get kind of statistics for the, the nationalities of most of the people that we spoke to in detention. So this was people from Afghanistan, people from Syria, people from Morocco, Algeria. And, and in general, it was always under 6% of the number of people who type it up. And most of them under one percent. Looking at return decisions to country of origin without even taking into account the safe third country concept in the EU-Turkey deal, because then you have masses of applications, um, for, for example, from Syrians and Afghans 
where people are detained on the basis that they're being returned to Turkey as a safe third country for them and their asylum claims are therefore inadmissible. But there's been a continued suspension of readmissions to Turkey since March 2020. So there haven't been any returns to Turkey, but people are still being held on the grounds that Turkey is a safe country and they will be returned there to be applying for asylum. And that's without even getting into the fact that Turkey is doing max returns of Syrians to Syria. It's a broken system. And where is the logic in this whole thing? So what it leads to is basically groups of asylum seekers arbitrarily detained in through removal detention centers for extended periods of time on this like, ambiguous and excessively applied public order grounds that are being used. Um, and this extensive distribution of detention measures are justified by alleged na national security threats, which is another issue because it's conflating criminal behavior with migration and that condones the use of carceral environments to respond to this so-called problem. And so as a result, you've got basically arbitrary and systematic use of detention with unjustified reasoning. And even within that, as we've discussed, the detention itself is violent on a structural and material and a physical and actual level. And going to another level, if we can talk about European international standards regarding um, the violence in uh, pre-removal detention centers and generally standards in those places. What do we know about that? What are the good practices and what is legally forbidden? What are the, the main law uh, bills saying about the situation? Yeah, so when it comes to the level of violence and ill treatment that we're talking about in the BVMN reports, um, we can kind of look at torture and the definition of torture as people themselves use this word to describe the treatment that they were being subject to. And torture is any act by which severe pain or suffering, whether physical or mental, is intentionally inflicted upon a person. Um, and the Convention Against Torture by the UN also um, prevents acts of ill treatment that don't meet the threshold to um, amount to torture. So I think it's quite easy to say these practices that we're hearing about being taken into dark rooms, being beaten, having electric discharge weapons used against them, that's intentionally inflicting suffering upon a person. Um, and so around this, you have kind of a number of um, acts and legislations at a UN and EU level, which um, which obviously legislate against the use of torture. And so there's three binding and one that's not legally binding. So on the UN level, you have the UN Convention Against Torture, Article 1, which prohibits torture. That's legally binding. You have the art Article 3 of the European Convention of Human Rights, which is legally binding. And you have case law that has come through the European Court of Human Rights that, again, upholds this legally binding nature. You have Article 4 of the European Charter for Fundamental Rights, which is, again, legally binding and prohibits torture. And then the non-legally binding one is the Universal Declaration of Human, of, uh, human Rights, Article 5, which... Um, is not legally binding, but it's supposed to form the basis of all state policies who have ratified the convention, uh, the declaration. So, um, you know, this is a this is prohibition of torture. In its essence, it is prohibited, um, and that is also an evolving right. So, new things can be defined as torture also. Um, so, something which is not considered torture today might be under that um, legislation in a few years' time. Uh, we at BVM and we've been doing a lot of work into the use of torture, more specifically in the pushback practices. So in our database, we have um, we have a number of testimonies of illegal pushbacks. Um, it's also important to note that 
we also have testimonies of illegal pushbacks occurring from detention sites where they have been subject to torture in detention and are further subject to torture at the border prior to being pushed back. Um, but Greece in general, as a general practice, 94% of our testimonies from Greece, pushbacks from Greece in 2022, contained one or more forms of physical violence. Um, and a number of those met the threshold for torture. So we have six typologies. We look at excessive and disproportionate use of force, the use of electric discharge weapons, which I've already mentioned, forced undressings, threats of violence with a firearm, inhuman treatment inside a detention facility as a form of torture that we look at within the pushback practice, and inhuman treatment inside a police vehicle. So we are already looking at torture on a grand scale of when people are being illegally pushed back from countries. And now we're honing in to look within state borders and we're finding more torture in state-run facility, facilities there as well. Um, but, you know, that are this is prohibited, just like pushbacks are prohibited, just like actually on an EU level, detention, not as a last resort, is prohibited. You know, this is, it's against the law. There should be infringement procedures. Yet it all is happening. Incredible. Uh, in both of your reports, we find some recommendations how to handle and how to tackle this issue. Uh, you prepared recommendations for the Greek government, but also for the international community to try to change something. I don't know why I'm a little bit hopeful that maybe something will happen first with the international community, even though it may not be implemented immediately. But what are your recommendations? So, I mean, generally, as like a softer recommendation, uh, what we really want is like all the actors work on immigration detention to come together so we can recognize this as a Europe-wide systematic practice and not deal with it in isolation in one member state and another member state because we really need to put the pieces of the puzzle together in order to um, combat this on a structural level. Um, our recommendations for the Greek state um, are about, you know, using detention as a measure of last resort again, in line with international and European human rights standards, to establish an independent detention monitoring mechanism. And this is very important for us, that it's truly independent, that it's well-funded and free from government influence, and has the direct involvement of civil society organizations with a mandate to independently investigate allegations of human rights violations and to publish regular findings in full for public access. And this is really the only way that we believe that such violations can be brought to light and be recognizable. Um, we called for the end of the detention for minors entirely, which um, unfortunately the new asylum procedures regulation normalizes the detention of minors whilst they are applying for asylum. So, you know, we hope for the best. <laughs> We obviously call to stop the use of violence, um, including with weapons and systematic violations of the Convention on Human Rights and the Convention Against Torture that are being perpetrated by the authorities. Um, we call for guarantees that people on the move have effective access to information regarding their rights, the possibility to appeal any decisions in the language they understand, and that a translator is present in all communications. Um, we ask that adequate and timely access to healthcare for people on the move in detention is ensured. Um, so this is just to ask the Greek state to essentially align with international and, hum uh, international and European human rights standards. For the commission, we call for the stopping of funding to the Greek state until there's an independent inquiry into this, into what we've reported. That's a strong one. Yeah. <laughs> 
We ask for it to establish that detention practices are in accordance with the European Charter of Fundamental Rights. So essentially that Greece is not in violation for that to be um, ascertained in order for funds to continue to be provided for migration management, for infringement procedures to be opened specifically on this topic. And for the matter of violence and torturous practices in detention to be referred to the European Court of Justice um, and to take all necessary measures to ensure that the Convention on Human Rights and the Convention Against Torture are upheld, which includes facilitating routine unannounced visits from independent inquiry bodies to detention centres. Um, we want the Commission to issue a public statement condoning the violent practices and to abolish the use of detention for asylum applicants on grounds of public order and national security to avoid arbitrary detention. So we have a long list. It's a long and a very ambitious list, I have to say. And I wish you all the best with it. We would like to support as much uh, as we can, of course. And I would like to thank you very much for your time and uh, showing us those findings from your reports, because it's extremely, extremely important that people know what is actually happening in those detention centers, because, as you said, that nobody, almost nobody has access to it. So the fact that you managed to get those interviews are a really big deal. Thank you very much for your time. The guests of our episode today were Manon Louise from Mobile Info Team or, and Hope Barker from Border Violence Monitoring Network. Thank you for listening to Fractured. Our podcast is produced by Refocus Media Lab's citizen journalists from Afghanistan, Iran, Ukraine and many other countries. It is partly financed by Alliance Foundation and Choose Love. However, it is thanks to donations from individual people like you that we can continue our mission of teaching media skills to refugees and asylum seekers and give them a platform to showcase their work. So if you value this podcast and our work, please support us on refocusmedialabs.org forward slash donate.